Well, it's a true joy and privilege, pleasure and delight. Wonderful, all of the above, to be back at Asbury, and I thank all those who made my trip possible. It's hard to believe that I joined the faculty back here uh, 21 years ago now, but it's true. It's also hard to believe that I once had hair back then, in those glorious days of old, but that also is true. I wrote my dissertation on the top floor of the administration building up there across the hall from Professor Arnold. Uh, I wrote it very late at night with music playing very loudly. Uh, but it eventually got done. And it's nice to know uh, that some things haven't changed and to see good friends in the crowd. It's nice to know the Bible department kind of sits up here. Of course, Professor Reese prefers to buck the system back there. <laughs> Professor Kiesling used to always be in the uh, upstairs, in the, but now he's down here. But it's good to see him, too. And it's uh, wonderful to be back. Uh, I'm filled with uh, great joy and great memories. Um, and uh, my dear friend, Professor Arnold's introduction was very, very generous. So I'm grateful for my time here and for such good memories and good friends. It's great to be back. So last time I was here, I preached a sermon entitled On Priesting. Today's sermon is entitled On Priesting Part 2. Or On Priesting, the sequel. Or On Priesting, Endgame. <laughs> I don't know where I got that. It just kind of seemed cool, though. Now, I'm sure you all remember my first sermon which I gave here on October 2nd, 2014. What? You don't remember? I'm quite shocked. I'm even offended. Actually, I'd be a bit worried if any of the current students remembered it, right? I mean, <laughs> if any current students heard that sermon and four and a half years later today, well, it would be time to graduate, wouldn't it? Uh, time to wrap it up. Uh, unless you're a PhD student, in which case you have another 10-year grace period. So just take your time. No rush. So just in case you don't remember that first sermon, let me summarize it briefly, because this is the sequel, or the end game. I began with that, in that first sermon, with the notion of the priesthood of all believers, made famous by Martin Luther. And I observed that the Hebrew word for priest, kohen, seems to be a participle, which means it has verbal qualities. It isn't quite correct, therefore, to say that one is a priest in the Old Testament so much as one acts a priest. Put differently, one is only a priest insofar as one priests. It's a verb. And by the way, when I say priest, I hope you hear pastor, especially if you aren't Catholic or Anglican. If you're Catholic or Anglican, you could just leave it priest. Now, the majority of the first sermon took a close look at Leviticus 13 to 14, the laws concerning skin disease, which we often call leprosy today. I read a lengthy section of these chapters in the middle of the sermon, and I suspect that reading that much of Leviticus, especially that particular section, made lots of people nervous. Nervous and itchy. <laughs> now, the way one priests in these chapters of Leviticus is by examining closely in order to make crucial judgments about clean versus unclean states and then by offering the remedies needed to set things straight again. These priestly duties are profoundly hermeneutical ones, interpretive ones, tasks that were high-risk, life-and-death kind of decisions in ancient Israel. Priesting, back then, was a serious and risky endeavor. A far cry, it seems, from the tepid, even flaccid visions of pastoral ministry that seem common these days, at least in North America. We just heard things are different elsewhere. Well, that was the gist of On Priesting, part one. All in all, a fine sermon, if I do say so myself. But maybe I'm wrong. 
whatever the case, today, five years later, we come to On Priesting Part 2. My text this time is a short one, and I don't think it will make anyone itchy, though maybe it should. In any event, it's just one verse from Jeremiah 18. It's actually, the, the text is actually Jeremiah 18, not John 20. It was a switch, switcheroo. But, you know, I'm an Old Testament professor. If I don't preach the Old Testament, who will, people? Right? Who will? <laughs> so here it is, Jeremiah 18, 18. Then Jeremiah's enemies said, come, let us make plots against Jeremiah, for instruction shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. Come, let us bring charges against him, and let us not heed any of his words. Here ends the readings. Now, I don't normally preach on just one verse, but in my defense, I would note that this verse is a particularly important one in scholarly treatments of ancient Israelite religion. The immediate literary context is Jeremiah worrying about enemies who are plotting against him, but what the enemies say has proven of great interest to scholars because it identifies three different religious types and associates each with a specific area of expertise. It's a kind of division of religious labor, if you will. Instruction for the priest, counsel for the sage, and the word for the prophet. Now, it's no surprise that the sages, the, the wise guys, both men and women, were charged with counsel, which includes things like discernment and insight. Equally unsurprising is that the prophet's special purview is the word, right? They're always saying the word of the Lord. Now, both of those religious types are pretty inspiring, if you ask me. Who doesn't want to be wise? Getting an advanced theological degree from a seminary isn't exactly the same thing as being wise, is it? No, it is not. But it's a step in the right direction, or at least it's an attempt. It's an attempt to appear wise, or at least smart. Anyway, wisdom sounds like a very good deal. Sign me up. Ditto on the prophets, those firebrands who spoke truth to power, fearless and relentless, advocating God's justice for the needy, and equally also God's righteousness for all concerned. The prophet gig was big time, legit world-changing stuff, truth-to-power kind of stuff. What could be cooler than that? But we would do well to remember that most prophetic types didn't want the job and tried to get out of it. Most of them discovered that they couldn't get out of it and subsequently found themselves up a creek, often dead before their time with no one to collect the life insurance. So, Given all that, especially the untimely demise part, maybe we'd prefer to let the profit thing go. At least for a full-time occupation. Weekends, maybe? But only occasionally, very rarely on Sundays. So, what's left, it takes a minute to get the jokes, okay? It does, but... <laughs> I'm thankful to be here, by the way, with Peg. I meant to mention Peg, who was in one of my first classes here at Asbury, and I still remember your student project on Psalm 46. Yeah, so it's, I do. <laughs> All right, anyway, I, back to the sermon. <laughs> so, sage and prophet, okay, so what's left? If those are off the table, what's left on the Jeremiah 18, 18 list? Just the priests. Just the priests and their instruction. In Hebrew, that's Torah. Sounds kind of boring, doesn't it? Especially to Christians. Especially to Protestant Christians. Sounds like institutional maintenance, rules, 
humdrum, blah, blah. You know, it sounds like ecclesiastical bodies, adjudicatories, conference meetings, annual conference meetings, books of discipline, and all that rigmarole. Who wants to do that? Oh, yeah, you do. We do. Even if some of us are non-denominational, because guess what? Institutionalism is everywhere. But we want more than that, don't we? Not just institutional maintenance, but more. Maybe not wisdom all the time. That's for the true sages, few and far between. And maybe not nonstop prophecy. That's for the prophets, an incredibly rare breed. But something of both, ideally, and definitely something more. Something that matters. Well, let's not give up on the priests quite yet, because I actually think that's where the action is for the likes of us. It's the priesthood of all believers, remember, not the sagehood or prophethood. We're just not that wise, after all, are we? Paul considers us fools, unwise, at least in the eyes of the world. And as much as we want to be prophetic, that's probably just proof that we aren't. And so, if we're sticking with Jeremiah 18's categories, there's nothing for it but to act the priest and to do so with that special arena of priestly responsibility, the Torah. Well, that's not so bad, right? I mean, recall that first sermon on priesting and just imagine the power, the power to make people itchy and then remedy it. Who needs talc, my friends, when you have the Torah? That too was a joke. But it wasn't just a rash. No, in Leviticus, the matters at hand were typically not issues of minor discomfort, but ones with serious life and death significance. If uncleanness was not remedied, it could lead to a life of isolation apart from the community. Or it could even lead to God's judgment on the entire people, even God's departure from their midst. Being a priest mattered. And that's just not some sort of crazy Old Testament magical gobbledygook. In John 20, as Brad read it to us, after Jesus is resurrected, the risen Lord commissions his disciples with the power to forgive sins or not. Did you catch that? Think about that for a minute. That is priestly power conferred by Christ on his disciples. Unbelievable priestly power. Being a priest mattered in the Old Testament and the New. It still does, I think, as I look out over all the priests gathered here. So let me highlight three important ways I think it matters, especially in light of the priestly responsibility for Torah. So first, think about all that the Hebrew word Torah encompasses. It's God's instruction, sure, which can be drawn very wide, encompassing all of Scripture in a maximal vision, but it also and most certainly refers to God's covenantal requirements, even and especially the priestly law proper. Now think about all that for a moment. All that technical priestly legislation that lives in various places in the Pentateuch, but above all in Exodus's discussion of the tabernacle and in Numbers and Leviticus's seemingly endless discussions of ritual and sacrifice. Your favorite part of the Bible, I know. If we are priests, that is our bread and butter. As one rabbi put it in the Mishnah, offerings of birds and purifications of men and women, these, 
Yes, these are the essential precepts. Astronomy and geometry are but fringes to wisdom. What? No scientist in their right mind would say such a thing. Only a priest would say such a thing. But only a priest could say such a thing, and only a priest would understand why that could be said, why that should be said, because priests, you see, know how much hangs on the tiniest of details. They know that God quite literally resides in such details, or at least cares about them. Yes, even those in Exodus, Numbers, and Leviticus. And don't even get me started on Deuteronomy. And if you are tempted to think otherwise, you should probably have a careful listen to Jesus' words in Matthew, where he says that not even the tiniest bit of this Torah will pass away. And where he recommends in the strongest possible terms a righteousness that surpasses the legal experts of the day. The fine details matter because they are about staying connected to God. It's no small thing that so much of the opening chapters of Leviticus concern sacrifice, the way sinners are restored to right relationship with God, made, as it were, at one with the Lord once more. Nor is it a minor matter that the very heart of Leviticus is chapter 16, which discusses the great day of atonement, at one mint, Yom Kippur, when everyone sins, get forgiven. That day was the priest's day. The wise ones and prophet types could only watch on, in awe, no doubt, but it was the priest's spiel. Neither should we forget that Leviticus concludes by democratizing all of that priestly business of holiness and applying it to all Israel, making them, too, a priestly people. And with that, Martin Luther is off to the races. But Leviticus knew it first, millennia before the Reformation. So, priests know all the technical apparatus, and they know that the apparatus has a purpose, to set the world right again, to set it right with God and for God. Kind of like the stuff that we do at the Lord's table. Or like what happened when the Lord breathed on his disciples, conveying on them the power to give or withhold forgiveness. So that's the first way priesting with the priestly Torah matters. The second thing to mention is that a lot of people these days in Bible scholar land, that's the technical term for it, a lot of people over there in Bible scholar land think that it was exactly the priestly types that preserved not just the priestly materials of the Torah, the Pentateuch, but in fact the entirety of the Old Testament for posterity, for us. Now maybe some of that theory is a bit overstated, but let's just assume it's true for a moment. It would mean, among other things, but maybe as the most important thing, that scripture as a whole is meant and first and foremost for you. It was, after all, according to this theory, committed to page by people like you and preserved by people like you, priests. It isn't then first and foremost to be applied to other people. A sword for you to brandish about, whether you are wise and prophetic or quite to the contrary. Instead, it was a sword like Mary had, one that will pierce your own soul. That's because, as every priest knows, this Torah, this 
This scripture is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Use with care. Handle with caution. So, all this priestly lore, all this scripture is for those who want to be, or better, who act as priests. Let me be as clear as possible. <laughs> that means that you'd better learn it. You'd better memorize it. You better get into it. Deeper and deeper and deeper. And if you do that, it means that you'll know intimately all its ins and outs. Which means you'll also know all the ups and all the downs in all this Torah. In other words, who should know the difficult parts of the Torah better than a priest? That's their domain. That's their expertise. Of course they know the high points, but that's child's play. That's stuff for any old non-priestly type. The priests know all that too, and also know that intimately, but, but they also know the squirrely and the squishy parts. The parts that don't seem to make any sense at all, the bits that are open for debate and discussion, not to mention downright disagreement. Have you come, I'm just going to throw this out there. Have, have you come across, maybe even the first week of a class on the Old Testament or New Testament, did you come across something that, I don't know, gave you pause? Well, welcome to the priesthood. Priests know of such things, and they know even more. And get this. They know all that, and they know more, and they're still priests. Well, the faithful ones, at any rate. The third and final way priesting and priestly Torah matters takes us back to Jeremiah 18, 18, to worry if what is said there by Jeremiah's opponents isn't, in the end, just wishful thinking on their parts. They're the bad guys in the story, after all, so maybe their statements can't be trusted. Torah shall not perish from the priest, they confidently assert, but we might wonder about that. Nowadays, as I look around at the world, sure, but also at the church, and even at schools of theology across the country, I worry that such perishing is not only possible, it's happening. It brings to mind another prophetic text, this one from Amos. The days are surely coming, says the Lord God, when I will send hunger and thirst on the land, neither a hunger for bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the Lord's word. They will wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They will roam all around seeking the Lord's word, but they will not find it. Now maybe Amos is thinking only of the prophetic word here, but I, I doubt it. And even if he was, if current theories hold any water, Amos's words were preserved and transmitted, ultimately, by priestly types. Priests who were obsessed with Torah with a capital T, which encompassed, at its fullest, the wisdom of the sages and the words of the prophet, along with the instruction for the priests. But nowadays, nowadays there seems to be a real shortage 
of priests. At least the kind that matters. The kind that know the Torah inside and out. It's ins and outs, it's ups and downs, it's details and purposes, and who apply all that, first and foremost, to themselves, and only then, after that, to others, for the setting right of God's world. A setting right that is costly and sometimes excruciatingly painful for all involved. We should wonder about this priestly shortage. Maybe it's because people seminarians included, only want to be wise or, or at least smart. Or maybe it's because they want only to be prophetic or at least activists. Sitting around with patience and a book, becoming expert in God's Torah, that seems, well, kind of boring, doesn't it? Far from the action, so removed from the heat, the light, the struggle, and so on and so forth. But real priests, the kind presently in short supply, know that nothing could be further from the truth. Priests know that only with this Torah can they know anything, let alone do anything, especially anything that matters. Especially anything that matters to God. I rarely tell stories or use illustrations in my sermons. I just have to admit, I don't think they're necessary. I personally find them distracting and oftentimes beside the point. But I digress, because here I'm making an exception. I'm making an exception today for a vignette that shows, I think, how priests armed with the Torah are desperately needed and, if faithful, often smack dab in the middle of the action. The story concerns Karl Barth, one of the greatest theologians of the modern period who taught in Bonn, Germany from 1930 to 1935. The dates and location are significant. And Barth, committed Christian that he was, faithful priest that he was, came into direct conflict there and at that time with the Nazis. He wrote while teaching at Bonn that the church had to proclaim the gospel even in the Third Reich, but not under it nor in its spirit, he said, because, among other things, church membership was not determined by blood nor by race. And then he sent a copy of what he wrote to Hitler. I wonder if Adolf ever read it. Not long thereafter, Bart refused to give the oath of loyalty to the Fuhrer, refused to salute Hitler as part of his lectures that was required, and was suspended from his academic post for this misbehavior. He was subsequently tried, found guilty, and dismissed, forced to leave his chair at only 48 years of age. In his trial, Bart defended himself, explaining to the court that the Ten Commandments would not permit him to swear loyalty to Hitler. Later, after his dismissal was announced, in his farewell address to his theological students at Bonn, he said the following. We have been studying cheerfully and seriously. As far as I was concerned, it could have continued in that way, and I had already resigned myself to having my grave here by the Rhine. I had plans for the future. But there has been a frost on our spring night. 
and now the end has come. So listen to my last piece of advice, students. Exegesis, exegesis, and yet more exegesis. Keep to the word, to the scripture that has been given to us. Well, in the face of Nazism, exegesis, exegesis, and yet more exegesis. Because that will tell us what we need to know, you see? And in the face of Hitler, Hitler, mind you, in the face of Hitler, keep to the word, to the scripture that has been given to us. Because that will tell us what to do. Exegesis, exegesis, and more exegesis. That sounds exactly right, if you ask me. And even if you aren't asking, I'm up here telling. <laughs> we want to do so many things. So many of those things are no doubt right and good, but how would we know? How could we know? Only through exegesis, exegesis, and still more exegesis. And if we do not keep to the word, the scripture that has been given to us, well, that famine Amos warned about seems right around the corner. In fact, I think it's already here. And it could be here because there's hardly a priest to be found. And the ones you find often don't have the foggiest idea about the Lord's Torah. And that means they aren't really priests. They aren't priesting. At the end of the day, sure, I believe in the priesthood of all believers. I'm a Protestant after all. But first and foremost, I believe in the priesthood of all of you. All of you who are here studying for the priesthood even if you're not Anglican or Catholic. I believe that you all, we all, are tasked with this priestly Torah, that we are to be scribes trained for the kingdom of God who know exactly what to bring out of the treasury at just the right time. If Bart was right, in Nazi Germany, there was nothing more important than that. And now, here in our day and in our time, whatever your political persuasion, be clear about this. The Torah has a politics of its own, and the priests know it. The priests treasure it. The priests preserve it. And make no mistake, German Nazis in the 20th century and neo-Nazis and white supremacists in the 21st are predators and ideologues to be sure, but they are also theologians and interpreters. Just bad ones. Exceedingly bad ones. False priests. And they're just a few in a cast of thousands, if not billions of deficient interpreters. Some malevolent, others just ignorant. And so, again, priests, expert in the Lord's Torah, scribes trained for the kingdom of heaven, are needed desperately. So, priests, I suggest you get to it. Master this Torah. 
Or better yet, let it master you. Crack that holy Bible of yours open and get to it. It's all that we who are Christians have left. In my opinion, it's all we've ever had from the start. In the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen.